along to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I share a meal with a fabulous guest and get them to spill all their secrets with me while you, dear listener, get to eavesdrop on our conversation as if from the very next table. We've been away for a few weeks, but we're back. Yes, we're back, I tell you. And boy, have we got some treats in store for you. Still to come this series, I rendezvous virtually with the Reverend Richard Coles, eat in with Edith Bowman and dish up with Damien Lewis and many, many more. This time, however, I met a man who has the most flamboyant attitude to cutlery I've ever come across. Alongside the tableware, we also discuss growing up as a gay teen in the 90s, getting into comedy, and his love of control. It's comedian and TV presenter Tom Allen. Single or double bed? Well, it is double, but when I went to buy it, my mum and dad came with me. And in the middle (laughs) of Ikea, Jay, in the middle of Ikea, my dad turns to me and went, well, do you need a double bed? Tom. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. I'm very excited about today. Are you? Sort of like going to a restaurant, but also sitting in in the house again. Could you note that I have dressed for you? I was going to say, well, I also put on a suit because I thought, well, I don't want to let Jay down. Esteemed well, person that you are, of course. No, yeah, of course. Although I assume that you you put that on every morning. I mean, I sort of do a bit in that it makes me feel like I'm going to work <laughs> if I if I've done that. So I, I kind of um, I do tend to I like to wear I like to dress up. What can I say? I want to ask you a very what I think of a scene setting question, which okay. is, what is the point of fish knives? <gasps> very good question. Of course, something that I was very adamant about as any teenager is. <laughs> Uh, any teenager, any, Tom. any normal, teenager. perfectly normal teenager <laughs> would be. I was obsessed with cutlery as a young person. Part of my um, elaborate distraction technique um, from me being gay. You're gay. Sometimes gay. Sometimes. <laughs> okay. But you know, as I've said before, I. Yeah. To be honest, I seldom find the time. But the uh, but as a teenager, I just sort of directed all my energies into things like format, elaborate formal things. And which essentially became etiquette, particularly that around the ceremony of serving food and, and eating food and, and kind of order of precedence and things like that. Did you feel yourself disappearing into a world that felt safe and comfortable and intriguing? Um, yes, I think it was. I think it was safe because it had rules and it had something that made me feel in control and superior to other people. I.e., I knew how cutlery <laughs> was supposed to work. And so there was going to be no table setting that would ever intimidate me. Uh, does the 30-something Tom Allen still give a toss about fish knives or can you can you live without them? You know what? I yeah. can live without fish knives. I can live without the elaborateness of fish knives and uh, napkin folding because I actually came to learn that yeah. I, d- I don't mind it as long as it's considered. That's all I care about. As long as somebody's put thought into it being nice, it doesn't matter it's it's not about it's it, dressing well. It's not about how it, it's it's a show of respect to other people. It doesn't matter how you dress. It's just it's just that you put in effort. And I think that is everything. And Jay, and you have my, put on jacket. a suit, a pocket square. You haven't I'm tied my up pants your, you, underneath this. As I was going to say <laughs> you haven't tied up your ring binders behind you, but that's okay. We're not going, we're not here to criticize you for that. Normally on in for lunch, I choose the takeaway, and it gets delivered. You came up with a different idea um, or a different proposal, which was explain what uh, about Prima Donna's. It's an it's a Italian restaurant near where you live, well, I imagine not far from Bromley. 
I'm glad you were supportive of this suggestion. Um, and obviously being the precocious little bitch that I am, I would have mm-hmm. to try and control everything. Um, and I, and so I wanted to introduce you to the restaurant where I first really learned to appreciate food. I've always, I've always enjoyed cooking. I've always gravitated towards, for example, uh, Delia Smith when she was on Tuesday nights. So I always enjoyed cooking, but it was only when I went to work at, um, it was a friend of mine from school, my oldest friend called Brigitte Bree. And um, her parents opened up this restaurant opposite uh, West Wickham Swimming Baths in West Wickham, uh, where I learned to swim. Not relevant, but interesting. That's good to know. And uh, they got together and built a restaurant that that really they cared about. And basically they wanted to make it informal, but one where everybody would be welcome. Children could come and sit and have dinner. And it taught me about, I, you know, we still go there as a family. It, again, it's that thing about effort. And they, I know they always care so much about every detail. And I worked there as a dessert waiter. The signs were there of what I might be interested in later on. Did you now? And um, and I learnt a lot about... I'd, I'd done a little bit of waitering before then, uh, but that was when oh. I really learnt about the sort of theatre. So your food's on its way to you, or has it already arrived? Um, no, well, I will hear it because I live with my mum and dad. I talk about this a lot. Um, and and they just had the front door. Well, actually, I treated them to a new front door. Then they had it installed. Now they're not sure if they like it or not. That's by the by. Doesn't yeah. matter. Um, Celebi. But they've got a, a doorbell, which is a little bit synthetic. It's like it's like an electric one. You press a button and then it sort of plays a... It doesn't play a tune, but it has an air of a... It plays a doorbell tune. Up here in Brixton, we have Ave Maria sung by the entire choir of the Vatican when you ring the doorbell. So I don't know why you couldn't have put a bit of effort into it. I mean, some people, when they, you know, they get, they, they get a bit of success, they buy their parents a new house. You... Are... No. no. <laughs> You've got for new doorbell. So, uh, are you yes. downstairs in the dining room? No. Oh, oh. Do you hear that? That's I the did. doorbell. That's do you want me to run? Doorbell. I'm going to run down and collect. You that, now, get is that correct? Is that how the you, format of this works? I think that's how it works. Bear Brilliant. with, please. Bear with. Uh, bear with. Bear with. Bear with. Thank you. Okay. Hello. <laughs> Has it, hang on. Hang on. I've not got my earphones in. I've got. And do you know what? I, and I've, I've forgotten a napkin, haven't I? Hang on, hang on, hang on. Tom, I can't, I can't see you anymore because there are so many bags. You've, you've disappeared. You've now, disa- they've been operating. Did they? Did Marino drop it off for you? Oh, Marino dropped it. Yeah, he dropped it off. Uh, and and wowza. So I have to say, firstly, thank you very much for sorting this because it's. I'm, you know, there, there are there are no downsides to this podcast, but but sometimes there can be a logistical thing where I'm sort of, you know, trying to work out how to get food to wherever. And this time, no, it was just a couple of emails and your food will arrive and you'll be cared for by Tom Allen. And uh, they've delivered me a, um, a bottle of olive oil. Well, this is from Marino's, uh, this is from near where Marino's from in Crete. So my starter is beetroot, apple and walnut salad with warm goat's cheese balls and a Cabernet Sauvignon dressing. What you got? I've got beetroot, apple and walnut salad with warm (laughs) goat cheese balls and a Cabernet Sauvignon dressing. There's a famous scene in the book early on when you are uh, trying to find a way to express your desire for Michael. I don't know whether he's called (laughs) Michael, but a schoolmate that you fancied. And the way you did that was by throwing an elaborate luncheon. <laughs> um, yes. Hence the fish knives, which also curiously involved the, uh, not just your friends, but two RE teachers who happened to be knocking around. Or- yes, they very kindly came along too. And, um, <laughs> That's lovely. Did, did, um, yes, did you find unusual. something comforting about the rituals of food? 
Yes, I think I did. And I, I thought it would be a great way to show off to him about this guy that I like. I didn't know... I, I, in the book, I wanted to write about how human beings do weird things. We're not always straightforward. And for me, it was like, I knew I loved this guy. I couldn't tell him because it was just not possible at my school. Um, and so I... Um, I just thought that I'll do this and then I'll, and he'll come and then we'll have to spend time together. And then somehow I didn't quite, I could never quite work out why, where this, how I would bridge this gap. But I was like, somehow he'll fall in love with me. Um, it didn't quite work out. Was it entirely a romantic attraction or was it sexual as well? I think at that point it was such a crush. You know, those crushes, oh, well, I don't know. I can't speak for anybody else. But um, those crushes one has that are, um, that, that are so kind of profound. It sort of transcended any kind of, um, you, you know, it wasn't just a lustful crush. Um, although of course that was part of it, but it was more, it was somehow more than that. I was just totally like obsessed with the idea of him and had this whole sort of fantasy of, in my mind, I was like, we'll move to the seaside. We'll live in a bungalow and I'll open an antique shop. Basically I was 15, but I wanted to be a 77 year old gay man living in <laughs> Hampshire. I just wanted to be anybody else, I think. That was the thing. I just wanted to be anybody but myself in that circumstance. I just didn't know how to be. And I was so caught up with it all that I I just sort of, you know, I just wanted to, something different. I just wanted to be something different, somewhere different. What I find startling and I will say almost distressing is that I've got a few years on you. I'm in my 50s and I marched against Clause 28 in the 80s. And this situation you found yourself in, we're talking the 90s, at a point when it should have been so much bloody easier, but clearly it wasn't. We were still under the shadow... Well, Section 28 still existed when I was at school, which, if anybody doesn't know what it is, mm, meant... Explain. It, it, was, it was brought in by Thatcher. In short, basically meant that no school, no state school, which I was at, um, could promote homosexuality as, a, as an alternative to the traditional family. But you couldn't promote homosexuality, which meant that my teachers, for example, were unable to go... If I was being bullied for being gay, they couldn't turn around and go, they've got no right to bully for being gay, it's completely fine to be gay. They were, And they could lose their job over that because they'd be essentially breaking the law. And it meant that there was no positive representation of gay role models in school. So in the absence of that, and I think that this perhaps is, is true in other circumstances, in the absence of positive role models, you can't help but be anxious about your circumstances. You can't, because you go, well, I guess it's bad. And the only representations we did have were about, basically, you know, if, if Channel 4 put a film on about, about gay people, it would be about queer bashing, uh, or it would be about, you know, violence, or it would be about illness. It wouldn't be about, oh, and these people had a really nice time, these people had a great life, and look, and they've got a lovely garden, and what a nice dog. There was none of that. And so, for me, it meant that I got the message, not... You know, and, and yes, there was bullying at my school and, and definitely sure. the word gay was used as a slur, um, which was awful in itself and still happens now. Um, it was, you know, socially, it was kind of perceived as the worst thing you could possibly be. But because there was no counter to it, there was no positivity to it. There was, you, you know, you never know what to think. And, and to be honest, I didn't know how I would be treated if I came out. And to me, it felt unthinkable to do it at school. But even as an adult, I thought, how would I be treated? Because he didn't know. And there was no discussion. There were no, there were no role models really on the television or anything. So it was um, that, that sort of non, 
it's 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 kind of non-verbal almost but those messages you get uh were, were very insidious for me one of the things that's become very clear you you make a lot of very good jokes about you know disguising being gay by dressing up in victorian garb being flamboyant wearing three-piece suits and all of that <laughs> yes uh, did anybody when when you were finally out go tom allen's gay well, that's the other thing. I thought I was, like, doing a great job yeah. of going, well, I'll just be so out there that no one will suspect a thing. And because um, at the time, I just didn't want... It wasn't that I wanted to come out. That was the other thing. I didn't... Because I was so scared of that. It felt like... Because there was no positivity around it, actually, all I wanted to do was just have... Just be... Just, just disappear, really. And so, actually, I loved dressing up in formal clothing. I liked old-fashioned clothing. Um... I liked uh, I, I liked the idea of serving dinner, and suddenly it occurred to me: I know what I should be doing with my life. I should be a butler, <laughs> which was largely based on watching *You Rang, My Lord*, and um, also uh, *Remains of the Day*, the very mournful. Well, I was uh, going to say *Remains of the Day* is about uh, it's an adaptation of the Kazuo Ishiguro novel, which is essentially about the sublimation of all emotion. Um, <laughs> to a task uh, it was it was perfect it was the perfect i was like great finally they're making films about me you're 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 very light and frothy in the book but i, I wonder whether it wasn't that you wanted everybody to know what your sexuality was you, but that you were very very uncomfortable with it yourself yeah i i think what i've realized as i've got older and is is that when you feel i don't know out of place in the world uh, and I was made to feel out of place as well by other people at school at times, particularly early on. Um, that you, you, that became a that I turned that on myself, and uh, that awkwardness I felt in the world became something that manifested as a, as, as quite a sort of horrible self-loathing, really. Um, and and that's sometimes difficult, I suppose, to articulate because, um, as I say, there were no there were there weren't the positive role models, so I guess. In lieu of that, what happened, what manifest was an in- internalization of trying to keep everything under wraps and not tell anybody and not let on about yourself and try and keep everything secret, which does manifest as a as an anxiety, I guess, or, or, or like I say, a self loathing that that you're not right and you're not okay, and that it's very frustrating. And, and there was no outlet about it, and there was no there was no like go and speak to a therapist about that because that was again unthinkable in the nineties, which was very much a you, you know, sort of the, the in the aftermath of the eighties, it was sort of very people were very uptight. Britpop itself was quite like, yeah, it was quite sort of. I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't a sort of um, exuberant time. How's your uh, beetroot salad? I'm trying to think of big words to impress you whilst shoveling beetroot salad into my gob. You can, you can stick to the small words. They they work for me as well. Well, they're so much easier between chews. Uh, are they not? Um, are they not? But um, I'm enjoying this very much, and it's very refreshing, I'm finding. What are your it's, thoughts, Jay? It's lovely. It's absolutely lovely. It's crisp and bright. And then, you know, I, I must admit, I went through the, um, the little goat's cheese croquettes very, very quickly. Uh, do you not plan how you consume a plate? Let's get into that, Tom. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. Jay, I'm so intrigued. No, I, I genuinely don't plan what I put on each forkful, which presupposes that you do. Yes, of course, you have to try and control everything, surely. No, I don't do it too much, but if there's something I really like, I go, I'll save that for a minute. And then I'll still eat my vegetables as though it's a chore, which is bad, isn't it, in this ever-vegan age? I am very much of the view that one of the reasons we cook... Do you still cook? Love it, yeah. Right. One of the reasons... I cook is it is a marvelous way of exerting control over the world around you. In a chaotic day, 
You can at least go into the kitchen and take control of ingredients, bend them to your will, make a steaming mess. Nobody can, that you can tidy it all up. Mm. And it, it strikes me as quite a lot in your life that is about exerting control. I suppose there is an element of control, yes, I'll say that. And I guess it's about fear, isn't it? That's what control is. You fear the world around you, so you try and manage the elements in it. And for me, that's very much about food presentation as well. Um, and when my friend in my uh, le- later teens, early 20s, my friend introduced me to Nigel Slater, and then it, it then it produced a whole new level of theatricality. Nigel Slater, of course, the Alan Bennett of the casserole dish. <laughs> and all that, like, as my parents would say, poncing around, yeah. um, is um, is very much up my straza. And um, I've never met him, but it's probably best I don't, because I probably would scream and cry. Just out of curiosity, you've said you like Alan Bennett, love Alan Bennett, as I do. When did you go and see The History Boys? I'm assuming you went to see it. Did you go and see it on stage or did you only see it on on film? I went to see it on stage and it really, it did bring up, but I preferred reading it. And this is, again, about me, I think. This is a lot about how um, weird I am. That I like it when it's just me and it's my special thing. And I think that came from being a teenager, being a bit of an outsider. The same with like wearing Victorian clothing, being obsessed with tableware. People are like, oh, but imagine if you'd met, oh, if you'd met my brother back then, you two were exactly the same, you would have gone, if I'd met their brother, I would have been absolutely furious and I would have had nothing done. I would have been like, we're nothing, we're nothing like each other. Um, And so, you know, even now I'm like, no, that's my special thing. No, only I like Alan Bennett. Grayson Perry uh, has this view, did a part of his stage show in which he said, the people we most disdain are the people who are closest to who we are. That's great, isn't it? Mm. I've never heard him say that. That's a great line. He he, he, he did it in uh, the most recent live show. And oh. the, reason, the reason I mentioned the History Boys is um, the, the character of Hector, who's the great English teacher, describes himself as not being in the swim, being on the outside. Yes. I remember that line. Did you relate to Hector? Um, yes, I suppose I did to an extent. I think it's a character that, you, you know, like Alan Bennett says, you don't write about yourself, you find you find yourself in the writing. I think that's an example of him feeling like that. And I suppose for me, yeah, that character, but also just Alan Bennett talking about, you know, him, just any, any sort of mundane activity he's been on. Similarly, the way... Another role model for me was has always been Kenneth Williams. The people who are outsiders, but... Um, you know, and as a child, I loved Kenneth. Like when I was like five years old, loved Kenneth Williams. I always just related to those people who, like you say, are not in the in the swim, who just can't jump in the pool. You must have read the Kenneth Williams diaries at some point. Mm. I mean, they're quite dark. They're, they're quite very scathing tragic, and very, yeah. and there's sort of a great unhappiness there. But I suppose for me, it was a kind of sense of, oh, you are allowed to lean into that, as people would say now. Lean into who you are. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel. That's okay. Whereas I think... It's so easy to be like, no, no, come on, don't be like that. Be nice. No, you're supposed to get on with people. And he was like, I don't want people in my flat. I don't want them using my toilet. Get out. And I sort of think I'd never met anyone like that. And I suppose as a, as a child, you're often given this saccharine version of the world, but you know it's not quite right. And so when somebody comes along and presents like, oh, actually, I hate doing that. You go, oh, that's okay then to feel like that, to feel kind of um, obtuse. Is that the word, Jane? It is. I think it is. We're about to move on to main courses, aren't we? I think we, we are. We are, yeah. Okay, so we have, from the menu, we have fresh fillet of turbot. Ooh. 
a prince among fish. Don't they say the emperor of the seas? Don't they say the, the emperor, emperor of the seas? I don't mean to, I mean, as I've already mentioned, I'm a bit obsessed with etiquette and I don't think we should downgrade an emperor. Um, no, all right. The Emperor of the Seas with, oh, there's a, a, a wild mushroom velouté. I mean, I think this has to be plated in some way. Yes, I think so too. So uh, I should explain what this is. So it's a slightly, uh, I think it's sautéed turbot, which has been floured and then cooked in butter. There's lots of butter involved in this. Mm. There's some uh, pea puree, which is gorgeous, and a mushroom velouté. I mean, this is, this is top gear. This is much better than we normally get on this. Oh, really? Well, there was talk of a delivery service, and I thought, no. Listen, well, when I interviewed Dara, uh, I got a Nando's, because that was the only thing I could match to his. I thought it was quite amusing. Uh, well, well, we could have done that. We could, yeah. I don't mind a Nando's, don't get me wrong. Well, one of the things I have to ask, um, given your interest in control and sense of self, <laughs> given all yeah. the, the character traits that you have described and you're famous about... There, there is a bit of me reading about you, which has an alarm bell going off my head. Going, Tom, for God's sake, don't do stand-up comedy. This will be self-destructive. You can't control the environment. Or, I mean, eventually, once you become very good at it, actually, it is about control. It's about conducting an audience. But it would strike me as the most dangerous thing you could possibly do on a personal level, and yet you dived straight in. I think I like the idea of it being a sort of dare. I think I wanted to. I've always said this kind of slightly. Um, What's the word? Obnoxious <laughs> way that I wanted, to, that I'm like, well, I'll, I'll just do it, and then you can. I've never been, I've never been one to fight back. If ever I felt, well, is the landline going? Hang on, there's a landline. This You've is got suburbia, a landline. Jay. This is suburbia. Do you want um, to get the phone or is it? Surely, no, okay, fine. I'm just gonna have to hang up. Surely you'd give up by now. <laughs> hang on, sorry, listeners. Leave it in if you like, Jay. It's human. They'll probably call back now, won't they? So uh, as as that's as that's been raised, um, you moved back in with your mum and dad seven years ago. Yes, sir. And you're still there. Mm. How's that working out for you? Well, I realise that being a stand-up takes uh, was, was it's a very frightening job at times because you're standing in front of strangers and sure they're often quite you know terrifying and. Um, I was living actually in Brixton at that point, and I decided that I needed to sort of surround myself with all the support I could get. Um, and so rather than living with flatmates in Brixton, I thought, actually, I'm going to, I have lots of insecurity in the other parts of my life. I'm going to try and make my home life as secure as possible. And so that was one of the reasons I moved back. I've always got on with my parents. They've indeed been a source of material for me. And what I learned really in a, in, as a stand-up is I only got good at being a stand-up when I really was at peace with who I am. And fundamentally, I am my parents' child. You know, like I do very much come from the area, the people, the area of Bromley. And so actually I found moving back and, and celebrating that thing, which for so long I'd been like, oh no, oh, it's a bit embarrassing, it's a bit boring. Dragging that out into the stage, you know, laughing about it meant that actually I was stronger as a stand-up because I think it was more honest and it was more, it was more me, really. It's so your bedroom, the, the same bedroom you had when you were a kid? Yes, I've redecorated. I've taken down the posters of Elton John now. But yeah, it's the same room. I tried to decorate it in a sort of modern way that matches the mid-century vibe. 
of the house and chose some very diligently, very cho- chose some very specific lamps. And then my mum and Auntie Christine went to Dunelm and yep. they bought a load of lamps and cushions that they thought go with it. And now it's sort of basically how they would do it. But that's fine. Single or double bed? Well, it is double. But when I went to buy it, my mum and dad came with me. And in the middle <laughs> of Ikea, Jay, yep. in the middle of Ikea, my dad turns to me and went, well, do you need a double bed? <laughs> Which was, you know, really lovely as a, as a single Pringle. I mean, you have said that being in love is, is something yet to happen for you. Yes. Uh, and relationships and all of that. One wonders whether your domestic circumstances, even allowing for lockdowns and pandemics, <laughs> might prove a block in certain ways, to romantic attachment. Are you self-sabotaging? Well, I think I am, you know. And I think it's a fear of being hurt, a fear of the emotional upset, a fear of the the vulnerability that brings. And I suppose, again, I sort of kind of revel in that and go, well, that's who I am, I guess. And for now, I'm going to be upfront about it. And um, it's easy to be like, oh, well, for a long time, I felt very much ashamed that I couldn't find somebody. And if I did date someone... I didn't like them or they didn't like me. <laughs> no, surely More not. likely the latter. Um, the, um, and uh, I can't think why. Uh, no, no, don't lay the table like that. Um, and so um, so I felt like, I don't, I don't know, it, it, it just sort of, it's the way it is, I guess. And I, I, in a way, I kind of embrace it now. It doesn't mean that I write it off, but I suppose I go, I'm, I'm just a bit more honest about I, it and go, that's who I am. Because I think we, we're, we're led to believe that we have to live a certain life and we're supposed to be married and have children and da 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 And actually, I, I think that's the essence of being, a, as I would say, a queer person. You can live on the outside of those rules. No, I was going to say, I, so are you, do you think you live as parent and child or as three adults cohabiting? I think we live as three adults cohabiting, um, one of which is the child of the other two. Um, and so, for example, like... They still want to know everything. And what are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing? What what you do? What time will you be in? Will you be? Would, do you need dinner? What what do you want? What do you want to have for your tea? That sort of thing. Um, but in a way, you know, I stand on stage on my own. I travel to places on my own. It's quite nice to have a bit of company around. So, but do you have conversations where something will happen or something involving your mum or your dad, and they'll turn and say, "This isn't material," or do they understand that um, their lives no. are now basically fodder? Look, Jay, they've got a new front door out of it. And a shit-kicking doorbell, it has to be said. A pretty great doorbell. Pretty great doorbell. Also, I did the front path as well. So. <laughs> there's a trade-off here. There's a trade-off. Also, they like they like, they like, like to be able to tell their friends that I'm on things. So it all works out, Jay. Do you find yourself thinking yeah. that would be a beautiful piece of material, but it might actually be less than welcome to those nearest to me? Not necessarily your parents, but anybody. Well, I hope that whether I do or not, but I hope that it's it's with a sense of celebration, uh, dare I say, even joy, so that I hope I don't f- seem mean. Uh, I always want to seem like I'm doing it because I'm fascinated and enamoured with something, the quirk of human nature. I've maybe noticed with my parents, say, whether that's them, you know, talking about somebody's kitchen or... Um, or, you know, slagging off somebody because they went on a cruise and yet still moan about their lives. Um, you know, that that sort of meant with a certain love. Uh, I would never want to be like... I always think the best comedy is when you laugh with and not when you laugh at. Pointing and laughing at somebody is never, for me, is never very pleasant to, to be part of. 
one of those that you describe in this book is going to parties and tidying up. Do you still tidy up at parties? Well, you know, when you go to a party, you don't know what you're doing there. Like I say, everybody else would be like getting off with each other on a work surface um, and smoking and drinking and having the time of their life. But they were straight people and that was their environment to do it. And as this awkward gay teenager who had no way of expressing it, I would go and I'd been invited. So I sort of thought I should go. But really, I just wanted to be at home with my mum and dad and and just watching Gardener's World. And so the middle place was to clear up because as well, I never really liked people my own age. I always like older people, particularly people's mums. I'm a big hit with the mums. I'm a mum pleaser. Even you said that, Jay. It's true. And so back then I was like, even if their mum had gone like on a mini break to, I don't know, Butlins in Southport, I, I thought I still felt a loyalty to that mum that I made sure their house was kept nice. Um, and I didn't like, or I, I never enjoyed, again, the lack of flamboyance. It was always like, just slam a few beer cans down on the counter, spill them everywhere. Don't worry about it. It's just, we're just having a party. And I was like, this isn't a party. A party should have canapes and should be tidy and people socialising and people intermingling with new friends. And have fish and knives, for God's sake. Where are the bloody, bloody fish, fish knives? knives? I'm getting out the dessert to just have a look at what yes, it I'm is. I'm ready for dessert. I, there was bread, there was a lovely loaf of bread and I tried so hard not to eat bread. Well, so do I. But, you know, life happens. I love bread so much. Now, what have we got here? Chocolate and Frangelico Marquise. So. Do you know about this dessert, then? No, but I wonder if this is the moment to bring it all round. Because you talk about when I invited Michael round. Yes. To try and impress him. And what happened, actually, at the end of that lunch was, it turned out he was... Well, two things happened. My two, the two Yorkshire Terriers we had um, started to shag each other on the lounge floor. Well, at least somebody and, was enjoying lunch. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Dinner and a show. And, um, the, and then uh, it turned out Michael was actually dating my friend Brigitte. Not knowing, because I had never told anybody <laughs> that, that that was something I had my arm. But, you know, what can I say? Brie is the person who first introduced me to Frangelica. So uh, this dessert, it's, it's a sort of little chocolate cake and there are balls of something and there's a white chocolate thing and some strawberries and a chocolate sauce. And uh, have you got a whole pot of... Yeah, sorbet. Shall I, I might just have to run... Because I don't think I've got cutlery. Ironically, considering what I've been talking about all the time. Yeah. I want you to eat dessert with a fish knife, Tom. <laughs> Hang on. Can you give me one second? I'll come downstairs. Thanks, Jay. I'm enjoying this. Are you enjoying this? this I'm having sound? a lovely time. Thank you. I'm quite codependent, so I have yeah. to ask all the time. Oh, no, I'm right, fine. Go. I'm fine. I'm enjoying this. Good. So when you've been on those bills, I'm actually going back a bit here, where where you were, re- I assume you had the time where you were doing a couple of shows a night in London, wandering from one club to the other and all of that. And you know, a, a round of different comics doing different kind of material. Um, and anybody who's spent time, you know, in the audience will know that there are very similar types. Did you ever think, I'm just not going to fit in here? Or had you become confident very quickly that what you did hit home? Um, no, I, I thought I'd never fit in. I think that's what I spent the first sort of 13 years of being a stand-up doing. I've been going about 15 years now. And I thought, I'll never fit in and people won't get me and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm so weird, but I'm going to carry I just always had this drive that I wanted to carry on. I think because I, I felt like, well, I've started on this journey. I need to, I need to finish. And also, I think that um, I've done some gigs where people were really horrible. Some people were really horrible. And um, 
I got somebody shouted out, and I don't mean to F and Jeff on your lovely You podcast. can F and Jeff as much as you like. Well, uh, no, somebody went, oh, f- uh, fuck off, you perf. And then everybody around him clapped. That was at a club in, in Birmingham. And um, and they said, and I left the stage after that because I was a bit upset. And um, afterwards the club said, well, because you left the stage early, we can only pay you half the money. And I remember feeling so devastated about that. And I got the last train home from Birmingham. What do you think about this, Jay? In my belligerent way, I got the last train back from Birmingham uh, and I bought a bottle of champagne just before Marks and Spencer's closed and I sat on the train and got pissed with a bottle of champagne. I mean, you know, a silly way to spend... Who sees the tears of the clown? Who sees them? Who sees those moments, you know? Um, And that was a foolish way to spend pretty much all of the money I'd earned. But my dad said, you should learn some put-downs to deal with people. But I I thought, no, because... I am not a naturally confrontational person anyway. And um, I thought that if I learn to play to those people who don't like me, then I will be stuck in a rut where I'll always be booked to perform to them and and I'll hate myself for it. I have to work to find people who relate to me. And, and, and that takes time and, and, and has been at times an uphill struggle with things. But I hope that I talk about things that people find relatable and and, 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 and when you find the people who do connect with you, it's all the more important, hopefully, for, for them and it makes them laugh. If nothing else, it just makes them laugh. <laughs> Which is the point. I mean, that is the job, isn't it? That is uh, the bloody job, isn't it? That's the fucking job. No, it's a fucking make job. Get out there and make them laugh. And if make you can't make them laugh, laugh you're just stop. a person standing on stage talking. Exactly. Um, yeah. Now, piss off with your bottle of champagne, silly little drunk. Um, no, I, uh, I agree. Yeah, it is about... It's just sort of about, it's about finding ways as well to call out people. And so you dismantle their, their sort of prejudice. That's what I found. So I'd often sort of walk out on stage and go, I know what happens normally. Straight men, they fold their arms because they go, oh, he wants to have sex with me. He wants to recruit me. And I always say we are recruiting. So if you sign up, <laughs> I get a £25 voucher in John Lewis. Um, so, and, and things like that, which I found very useful in, in dismantling it. But I never wanted to play. I never wanted to find a way to sort of, do you know what I mean? Like play up to people who ostensibly didn't like me. I have to ask you a final question. Have Has this process, this lunch together, staying in for lunch, turned your working space into a bloody mess? Are you now surrounded by packaging? Because I know I am. Two things I want to say to you is, yeah. one, I don't know how you've done it, but you've timed it so perfectly because my plate is bare and you've come to my last question. <laughs> it's almost like I know what I'm doing. And, but you can't see the plate as I'm eating it because... <laughs> My face is so massive. I was it counting the spoonfuls. Spoon I'd already eaten mine and worked out. So you no, do I calculate your forkfuls, I knew it. Um, so my my environment is, is um, it's not untidy, but it is, um, it is, there's a lot of stuff here, which is, you know, they really did a good job. And I think they're still there. Well, they've done a brilliant job for both of us today. Thank you for getting them on side and organising this. Uh, it has been a, a huge joy to spend time with you, in, even in these weird Zoom days, mm. looking at you in a little window. Um, <laughs> and all that remains to me is uh, to say, Tom Allen, thank you very much for staying in for lunch with me. And a big thank you to Tom Allen for joining me and organising such a delicious meal. It really was lovely to have someone else sort the food, which came from Prima Donna's in West Wickham, south of London. And his autobiography is, rather deliciously, entitled No Shame. It's available from all good bookshops and, I suspect, a few lousy ones too. Out to Lunch is a something else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The sound engineer was Gulliver Tickle and the mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The producer for this episode was Jemima Rathbone and the assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The exec producer is Darby Doris with additional production from Steve Ackerman. 
Join me next time as I chat to the award-winning actress, singer, and all-round living legend, Sharon D. Clark. <laughs> I was expecting you to say that. <laughs>